Today on Standing on the Shoulders of the Giants, we have with us Scott Longhire, who is a pretty darn good friend of mine. We've known each other about 25 years since we first worked together way back in the late 90s at Hotmail, of all places. Um, Scott, you're currently the Director of Industrial Network Defense at Microsoft, which might be one of the coolest titles I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, some really awesome stuff there. Can you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's absolute pleasure to see you again, uh, to be able to spend some time together and talk about some of our favorite topics and probably tell some old stories. So yeah, uh, Director of Industrial Network Defense. Uh, this is actually a brand new role. The title and, and role has never existed before. And um, I've spent probably the last seven to eight years um, sort of cultivating a culture that enables a, a role like this and a team like this to be able to exist. Um, and, and it helps, you know, that we've had some pretty major industrial network type incidents that have been uh, in the news that uh, prompt the need for cybersecurity capabilities in that space. So that that helps a little bit. We always say, don't let a good incident go to waste. And, and that is certainly true, um, but it's an exciting space. I can't wait to talk about it some more. And um, thank you again for having me. Absolutely. I mean, let's let's jump right in. Seriously, let's jump right in. So industrial network defense, clearly there's been a number of industrial scale attacks, et cetera. Can we go through a couple of those? Some of the mitigations? I mean, you're basically the counter hacker for Microsoft. So it's a pretty, pretty sweet role. It is. I love it. And part of the reason why I love it so much is the people I get to work with. Um, the the and, and let's talk a little bit about what is an industrial network. Let's talk a little bit about um, what does it mean to try and defend them? What does it mean to try and, and keep it going? For, for the most part, like most people, the, the average person, you know, just going about their daily life is not very aware of these industrial processes. Things like water treatment, uh, sewage treatment, the energy grid, you know, we all know when the lights go out, you know, and there's a power outage or something. And that's pretty much the only time we think about it. Or you see, you know, there's a, a water issue in like Flint, for example. So like it makes the news when it goes horribly wrong. But when it's operating the way it should be day in, day out, hardly anybody notices. So those types of operational processes also apply to uh, a whole bunch of utilities whether it's oil and gas or it's data centers, and that's the work that I do at Microsoft, you know, we have enormous forces at play. We are dealing with massive amounts of air volume, uh, water pressure, uh, of course, electricity. Data centers are basically factories that turn electrons into data and, and move them around. And so think big factory industrial type complexes for all of these types of operational processes. And the protection of those is, um, I'll say inadequate for the vast majority of the industries in the fields. So what I find that's been happening, going back to what are some of the incidents? So a couple of years ago, we had an incident here in the United States where an oil pipeline, a major one uh, across the East Coast to the Midwest was impacted, where what actually happened was a piece of malware, so a, a, a piece of software that's intended to uh, try and get money from people. We call it ransomware, right? So this ransomware got loaded up on a couple of computers, and these computers were responsible for managing the pipeline, uh, oil flow, oil pressure, and monitoring systems. And the people who wrote this ransomware, they were not even targeting this oil pipeline at all. 
Like they weren't going after this industrial system. It's like, I wrote some malware, I released it into the wild and whoops, I slipped and disrupted the United States energy. Like, yeah, it was, a, it was a mistake. And so the, the side effect of a lack of cybersecurity defense of these industrial processes is, you know, hackers and malicious uh, actors that are, that are spreading this malware and ransomware type things, they can accidentally disrupt these major industrial processes. So that kind of, um, I'm going to call it neglect, right? It's something that we can't sort of stand for moving forward. We have to be vigilant and we have to be thoughtful and not allow like unintentional accidents of malware to disrupt our, our facilities, to disrupt our operations in that kind of way. I mean, even beyond that, so I, I hear exactly what you're saying, um, but even beyond that, you're saying unintentional. I'm saying, well, what about intentional too? I mean, that I, I, because I agree with you, it's, it's um, usually when, when the word crisis or disaster comes about, it's always when something that we take completely for granted absolutely stops working, just fundamentally. Usually, not every time, but usually it's like if, if, if these things that we just happen to not think about on a day to day basis. I mean, they, I think New York is is probably the most predisposed to this. When the trash men go on strike, I mean, it's it's there, there's no alleys in New York. There, it's effectively like they just pile up on this on the on the on the streets and sidewalks. So it's it's really not a joke, right? And I, I, that's one small example. But I mean, you're talking about like national level things that we need to really protect. Again, oil pipelines and the and the power grid, et cetera. This type of infrastructure is critical to say the least. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, um, you know, there are malicious actors that are targeting these uh, infrastructures uh, intentionally as well. So uh, there was an incident not too long ago, it's been about well, a year and a half now, where uh, a water treatment plant uh, during COVID uh, opened up a remote access capability so that the engineers could remotely monitor the water treatment because they weren't allowed to be on site too many people in the same location. They can't all be in the same control room that they used to be in together. So they're at their homes and they're trying to monitor, you know, this massive water treatment facility from remote. And they had to enable some technology to enable that remote access and, and to be able to get those views and be able to do those controls. A um, malicious actor who didn't have a lot of uh, negative intent in terms of, you know, oh, I'm going to go hurt people or I'm going to destroy an economy or something like that, more uh, curious, found this remote access capability, accessed it, and modified some of the chemical settings of the composition for the water treatment plant. Now, coincidentally, one of the engineers was monitoring the system at that time, saw the chemical level change happen in his monitor and went, this is not appropriate, right? Now the level didn't cause any damage. It didn't hurt any people. Water systems were not compromised in a major way or anything like that. But I mean, we were literally a couple clicks away from having you know an entire water supply contaminated with a uh, potentially dangerous level uh, what are typically, you know, very, very low level chemicals, you know, at higher doses can be dangerous to people and animals and whatnot. So, uh, you know, that was intentional that he, he, the, the, the attacker wanted to see what they could do, wanted to see if they could access it, modify the settings, see if anyone would notice, you know, that's not accidental. That was, that was targeted. Now it was also a, a crime of opportunity, right? That, that person came along this, uh, remote access you know, situation and opportunistically took advantage of it. Um, 
on a on a far darker side, right? If you look at what's been happening in Ukraine. Now, yeah. uh, war brings out some of the most challenging threat actors on the planet. Uh, these people are serious. They're government funded. They're supported by major organizations, some of them legitimate, some of them criminal in nature. And uh, they basically get the best of the best in order to figure out how to uh, intentionally disrupt public systems. And and by public systems, again, I'm meaning like water and electrical and whatnot. So it's one thing to say, uh, I'm going to uh, you know attack a, a bridge and blow up a, a transport. Or I'm going to, you know, attack a dam, and that's, you know, hydroelectric, you know. And we're used to these concepts around physical attacks. You know, you, you hit it with a rocket, you hit it with a bomb, and it disrupts. But we're seeing far more advanced cyber attacks against those uh, industrial complexes, and it rose significantly at approximately the same time that Russia was invading the Ukraine, and it was no coincidence, right? It was absolutely intentional. Um, and it was targeted, but those those attacks are now released into the wild, as we say, and they can be used and reused for other targets. Would you argue that this is sort of either the fourth or maybe even fifth, I guess, domain of attack? You basically, I mean, in standard warfare, you have sea, air, land, and then of course, um, with I I, st I still can't say it without kind of laughing, but with Trump's creation of Space Force, I just think Space Force is kind of funny. But you could argue that was either the fourth, but I mean, technically, you could argue that maybe that was the fifth, and that cyber, even though it hasn't been thoroughly acknowledged as is the I, I guess the fourth domain of war. I mean, we've been doing this since the seventies, eighties, and whatnot, especially the creation of the NSA and so on and so forth, where you basically have had some type of electronic. I don't know what you would even want to call it, war, either warfare or espionage. I mean, you could even argue back in the 20s when Hoover was bugging everybody's phone that um, at some some point in time or another that that this electronic world, cyberspace, if you will, sort of became that that next next level of of not only warfare, but, you know, also also something something to be defended. Absolutely. Um, you know, in the United States, the multiple defense agencies have dedicated staff and personnel specifically uh, for this domain, uh, you know, for this theater, as we call it, right? It's it's a cyber theater. And so uh, if you look back in time, uh, I, I could be mistaken, but I believe it was Roosevelt who developed uh, Army 2. And Army 2 was developed as a support organization for primary army. And so you that's where you would have a lot of staff that was associated with like... Um, cooks and chefs and uh, clothing suppliers. They were part of army too. They helped the primary army, but they weren't, you know, guns in hands out on the battlefield type type of soldiers. Uh, but still, you know, um, uh, members of the United States Army. So they just called it army too. So army too, eventually the, those functions got absorbed into primary army and primary Marines and so on, and, and became extensions of each of those forces versus a separate force. Um, but that's how it originally got funded. So Army 2 actually got converted into cyber defense. Yeah. So it was, again, people not out on the front lines, but operating in a theater of battle. And this is where you started to see a lot more technology advancements. And, and this is sort of post-Hoover, by the way. And so like, <laughs> um, 
the the capabilities for um, what are our offensive tactics in a cyber theater, what are our defensive tactics in a cyber theater, have been, I would say, under evolution. And you see these major shifts about every seven to 10 years. I see a, a, a push, if you will, a major shift in that cyber theater capability. So this is a question I get asked not to change the subject because we're still going to go with this subject, but to bring it down just a half notch here. I get asked this question maybe on a daily basis, especially by my non-technical friends, which is how do I, how do you hack into stuff, et cetera? I'm always curious to hear other people's takes on this. And obviously, you know, it, it's just a chat session, so there's no code that we, we we can sort of show, but is there a way you can explain this to people in, in using sort of plain English, like, how do you have and for that matter, of course, not only how do things get hacked, but also how do we defend against against those types of things? Yeah, uh, I'll do my best. There's a, a few ways and I use analogies a lot. And so uh, as with any major uh, discipline, there are uh, different levels of skill sets, right? If you look at an electrician, you know, you start off as an apprentice and you go through multiple years or uh, as a doctor, you start as an intern and, and you have an internship before you, you know, are allowed to do all the things. And so I, we don't have that level of rigor for most hacking, you know, roles. Uh, but from a defender standpoint, we have some similarities. The idea, though, is some of the most basic constructs around hacking aren't like what you see in the movies. They aren't what you might see on television with beautiful screens and crazy graphics and stuff like that. Although, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. Mr. Robot was actually pretty realistic. Okay. And, of, and, of anything I've seen, that was that was very, very close. And and there's a reason. Mr. Robot consulted with real security professionals oh, in yeah. order to I, use I actually real know tools. a couple. I think you do as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I saw Nmap on the screen and I was like, Fjordor, what's up? <laughs> You're on TV. <laughs> right now. But um so yeah, there are exceptions to those rules. And in fact, uh there was a couple of movies. Oliver Stone did a couple of movies that actually had some hackers in them. And close, close association with, with our circle of, of people for good consultation there. It was really fun. Um, but, but the vast majority of the, you know, stylized versions of what you see on like NCIS or whatever are, are not super realistic. Most, most hacks aren't, you know, some crazy code breaking scenario. Most hacks are, you know, logging into the system using an existing password. They just got a copy of it. Right. And so being able to like, there's a phrase, you know, hackers don't break in, they log in, right? And, and, and it's kind of true. So credential theft, stealing of a password, stealing of a token, and just reusing it. It's just like taking a picture of someone's physical key and then reproducing that key and then walking up to the door and unlocking it. Just like, and that's possible. You can do that now. The cameras have good enough resolution. You can literally just take a photo of a key and make it. And whether it's 3D printers or people that are skilled in, in the craft, it's not terribly hard. So, so reusing existing credentials, reusing an existing login and simply applying it is uh, probably one of the most common methods and techniques that's, that's used out in the field. And sometimes those credentials are harvested and stored for a future date saying, ooh, I now have the keys, but I'm not going to let anybody know I've got the key until I need to use it. No. So that's where a lot of the, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk attack and defend at the same time. So, you know, the, def, the defenses against that are, you know, short-term tokens, short-term keys. Imagine if the key to your front door only worked for an hour 
and you had to have a new key every hour. And, and, and that's how digital keys sort of can work. And so you can have these very short-lived credentials. Uh, we also have concepts that we, we like to describe as just-in-time, where uh, as a user, I would ask permission to log into a system. And if I'm granted that permission, I'm only allowed to log in for a certain period of time. So it's a temporary key. So go ahead, steal it. It's not going to work in 15 minutes. So what? You know, I, I shouldn't say so what, but the the opportunity to reuse that key is significantly limited. Um, some of the other, uh, you know, more advanced hacker techniques um, do involve code, right? And so where you see advanced researchers, um, oftentimes, uh, you know, very detail-oriented reverse engineer code breaker types, um, they will take a, a binary or they will take a, a service, a website, and really probe and inspect and disassemble and take apart. Uh, to use another analogy, you know, let's say you didn't know how a car works, but you had one physically in front of you. So you start disassembling it and you're going, oh, it's put together with these kinds of bolts and these kinds of uh, welds and this, these kinds of materials, and you reverse engineer it. And you look at all of the parts and all the components and how they're assembled and how they work together or don't, oftentimes in reverse engineering, you're breaking stuff and going, oh, that didn't work. You know, the engine doesn't turn over anymore when I connect it in this other way. And so like that reverse engineer um, is very, uh, it reminds me a lot of some scientific processes where trial and error and trial and error and error and error and trial and error, just over and over and over again, hundreds of times, thousands of times in order to, for, for that attacker, for that hacker to um, get the system to behave in a way it wasn't designed to behave. And by the way, that's, that's what I think of as the definition of hacking is getting a system to behave in a way it was not designed to behave. I love that very broad, generic kind of definition. I think it applies to so many things. And, and, and that also is why I think you see this proliferation of the word hacker. Oh, we're, you know, growth hacking, we're education hacking, we're, do, we're now everybody's hacking. Why? Well, we're using a system in a way it wasn't designed to, but that can have a really positive effect too. It's not always about um, negative outcomes and, and destruction and mayhem. It can be very much about educating our next generation of children. It can be about teaching them how to how things work and, and how to take them apart, how to put them back together. And that was a, that was a huge part of my childhood, by the way, was disassembling everything around me all the time. Could I get it to work again? <laughs> Sometimes, right? But I learned how the mechanics of electronics worked, of, of uh, electrical components worked by, by disassembling and taking anything I could out of the junkyard, out of the backyard. You know, the weed eater doesn't work. Okay, I'll take it apart. What's it do? How's it work? What are these parts, right? And, and back then I didn't have the internet. I couldn't go look up a Google video and go, oh, how's this thing work? So yeah, a lot of reverse engineering and in, in a lot of trial and error is a huge part of the, the hacking construct. No question. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I did the same thing growing up. I took the telephone off the wall, literally disassembled it across the floor, the whole, the whole thing. It was, it, was a, it was funny because my mom was not happy about this. Dad, on the other hand, said, can you put that thing back together by chance? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, all right, if you can put that together and back on the wall and it works, we're going for ice cream. Otherwise, you're in trouble. It was good. It was like I got the, I got the, the negative and the positive reinforcement all in one. It was great. And it worked. So that was good. But yeah, I did that a bunch growing up. I love your definition of hacking. I couldn't agree more. It's getting a system to do something it wasn't initially designed to do. Um, I, I use that definition myself. I think that's 
spot on. Um, for those listening, the one thing that I will say is if you're, if you, if you're not able to obsess about technology, hacking is not for you because that's basically what it is. When, when Scott was, was mentioning, you know, taking something apart, you know, a thousand times and trying to reassemble it, et cetera, inside of code. I mean, you're talking potentially thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of lines of code, surfing through them to see if you can find the weak spots and then attempting to exploit that weak spot in a, in a very particular way to get the system to do something that it wasn't designed to do. But the thing is, you could spend a week or two or three or 10 on that weak spot and all of a sudden realize it's not as weak as I thought, or it doesn't lead to the place that I wanted to get. So being obsessive is, is a bit, bit rough, rough in that particular realm. I, I think, a, absolutely. I think a huge part of it too is the willingness to be wrong. Like there's a certain level of ego you've got to drop about how you think something works or you how, how you think something should work, especially if you built it. Like if it's your own, you you know, I, I've been, I've, I've succumbed to this a couple of times where I think something is better than it probably really is simply because I constructed it or I, I got to be part of its design. Um, there's, you know, some you know, hubris, you gotta, gotta learn about that. But uh, being able to remove some of that ego and be wrong, um, oftentimes is sort of the, the core of what, you know, you've probably heard the phrase growth mindset, right? And so this, this concept around having a, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset in your approaches, for, for me, it means just willing to be wrong. And in fact, assume I'm wrong. And, 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 and then that will sort of almost force me or encourage me to reach out to others, try and tri triangulate what could be the truth or what could be uh, an accurate representation of a system or its behavior. And, 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 and I'm going to use the word triangulate because it's about getting multiple perspectives and multiple points of view that are outside of my own, pulling those together and then going, okay, now that I've learned 10 times more than I knew yesterday, the day before, a year ago, however long it's been, I, can I reapply that new learning, that new law, knowledge, adapt my approach, uh, and, and, and then, you know, with wind back in my sails, with new energy, with new information, can I, can I approach this problem in a different way that I hadn't thought of before? And, um, oh, I'm really glad we're talking about this. This reminds me, uh, I get asked a lot about how to enter the cybersecurity field. Ooh, it sounds super interesting. How can I get into it? But it seems so hard to get into, or it's like some sort of exclusive club and I don't feel invited. And you know what? For it decades. Kind of is. <laughs> exactly right. And, and a lot of the security professionals, uh, actually had a lot of ego for a long time. And I see, I've seen that change significantly in, in the, in the security, cybersecurity culture. Um, but for decades, it was exclusive. It was, I'm smart, you're dumb, get out of my face. Name calling, ugliness, toxic behaviors, uh, sexist behaviors, uh, oh, yeah. especially. And, and so uh, that part of the cybersecurity culture really rubbed me the wrong way. And uh, I'm drawn to some counterculture elements in terms of whether it's sexuality or, or anything like that. And so I have a lot of people in my friend group that are alternative in lifestyle. And, and so it really bothered me to see so much, uh, well, bigotry and, and hatred in that community. All right, um, going back to the, the, the topic about um, entering the field though, uh, I think there's lots and lots of different ways to enter the cybersecurity field now compared to when I was able to enter it, you know, in the, in the late 20th century. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's educational paths, there's, there's 
you know, college and classes and online and you can do self-taught, you know, there's a lot of programs out there, but I have found that one of the most important elements was creating a, a community, finding two or three other people that are also interested and maybe have a different skill set than your own, a different background than your own, and even just two or three people uh, working together to further their knowledge and to test ideas against each other. Like, uh, I'm going to use an example of Capture the Flag. It's a very common uh, hacking game. And it is a game. You can find Capture the Flag websites where you try to break into a system and find a piece of data and steal it. And then uh, it, it might be like a special code word or something like that buried in a file system. So you break in, you find the special code word, and then you reveal it to the game coordinators and say, is this the special code word? Did I, did I capture the prize? Did I capture the flag? And they'll say, oh, yes, you're ready for step two. And, and they move you along. It's, it's very cool that way. So imagine trying to tackle that by yourself right with and i'm going to say any one person is limited so i'm going to say with the limited experience and the limited knowledge of a single person no matter how much experience they have right attacking that problem is uh challenging and perhaps even inefficient but you bring two or three other people with you and each of you have a different idea and different perspective and you're inspired by uh, something you saw either through the game or through the um, experience or something from your background. Maybe somebody was a plumber and they knew how certain welds worked and they like can cross pollinate that information into another domain. I call it crossing the streams. It's a Ghostbuster reference. So when nice. you take two people from different disciplines and then they start crossing the streams of knowledge and information and going, ooh, maybe that thing that you learned in neuroscience applies to uh, electronic networking. Oh, it does. There's some similarities there. Oh, but there's differences too. That's okay. Anyway, that, that cross-pollination can be extraordinarily valuable. And so my number one piece of advice in that space is get a partner, get a small crew, pull two or three people together and just say, we're all here to learn. Are we going to do this together? Yes. That's effectively what I did in the, in the uh, early and mid nineties when I, you know, the woo woo hacker group, et cetera, we all, we all got randomly outed on TechCrunch. but regardless, <laughs> um, that's, that's basically what I did. I mean, you, you, you really can't enter the space by yourself, but you brought to, you brought up several things there. And, uh, I, I think I can, I think I can sum them all up with one word, uh, for the folks listening, that word is DEF CON. And so Basically, this is a conference that's held yearly for effectively hackers and um, security professionals, et cetera. It's been held forever and a day. Scott, I think the first one we were at, I think it was 98. It was either 98 or 99. Yeah, I remember going to like DEF CON 6. So that might have been a little before then, but I, yeah. it was in the that first time one we went to was after that. I think you went yeah. even before I did. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, but regardless, uh, this is an interesting conference. And the idea is, if you do want to get started in cybersecurity, or this is something you're just interested in in general, DEF CON's probably a place to go. Um, and again, bringing, again, you know, bringing, bringing together a bunch of different people, especially today with everything being remote, you can really find a crew that can help you learn and help you get into this, this type of space, etc. The one thing I will say is, Security is a very interesting but somewhat frustrating discipline. In order to break something, or for that matter, to defend it, you actually have to know it, I would argue, at least as well as the people who built it, and sometimes even better than the people who built it. So it's not just, you're not just a software engineer. It's like, well, I not only understand the code they wrote, but I understand its context in this huge domain of of, of everything else that's running in and so on and so forth. But regardless... 
DEFCON was pretty amazing. Do you, you want to give people some background on DEFCON and getting crazy in Vegas? Oh, a, a bit. Um, it's kind of interesting because DEFCON has like a formal group that organizes it and manages it. And, you know, Jeff Moss started this thing a long, long time ago, trying to get some people together. And, um, and, and there's this like official DEFCON crew and they've got their goons, which is like the physical security staff. And they make sure that things are operating smoothly and, and people aren't, um, misbehaving too badly, but there is a lot of misbehavior activities that happen. Um, although I think, some of that's calmed down a bit with the amount of visibility that has come to DEFCON. I think we're on like DEFCON 30 or something like that now. It's been around for like 30 something years. And so- I mean, if I recall correctly, even in the mid 2000s, uh, like Vegas was literally put on alert. Like, hey, there's a huge amount of computer security people and electronic security people, both black hat and white hat. That's both good, you know, the, both both the hackers and the hacker defenders descending on Vegas. Like casinos were literally put on alert across yeah. the board. I don't think they did that in the '90s, but I think once they, it spread wind, it it got got out there pretty quick. It, it was close. I remember seeing the first poster at I want to say DefCon 10, where there was a physical poster put up uh, at an employee uh, break room for a casino, and it said, "Be aware, there is a major conference happening." Don't give anybody your your keys, your badges, your cell phones. You know, don't access your bank accounts. It had a whole list of things that employees are not allowed to do. Uh, in phone systems, there was a lot of phone hacking, and so uh, there was a oh, uh, there, yeah. th there was some notices that started getting circulated. And of course, we were on missions to remove them and 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 and, and disrupt them, change them, and whatnot. Uh, you know, a lot of that was harmless hacking. I would say, like, no one was out trying to hurt anyone or or uh, cause any um, sort of major uh, human damage. But there was a lot of information theft and seeing what you could get away with. You know, could you pretend to be an employee of a casino? Could you get into a back room? Could you access a system? Uh, there were some talks of some people that were trying to modify the fountains at the Bellagio for a while there. They were trying to figure out how to access that, that system. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, there was some theft. I do recall quite a bit of theft. There was, you know, theft of satellite dishes off the tops of casino roofs and dropped into the pool of the Alexis Park. That was a good one. Um, yeah, I think I remember that one. Someone was a trained helicopter pilot and somehow managed to get, I think it was like, I could be wrong, but I think it was like the Sprint Tower dish. And then pulled the, literally right. the whole dish off, and then dropped it in, into the into the. Uh, I guess it was Alexis Park. What was it that? Was. That was that would have been DefCon eight or nine, something around there. Yeah, yeah. And, wow. and But but a good chunk of the event during the day is you know people sharing their experiences, their knowledge, their research, and oftentimes dropping what we call O day, you know, zero day exploits, meaning that the vulnerability in that particular service or software had never been released before. And so everybody loved to come to DEF CON with their latest and greatest security research and drop their O-Day and impress everybody in the crowd. And everybody's like, ooh. And then like that day, they would grab that exploit. Let's say it was in, oh, I don't know, Office. You know, back Office was announced at DEF CON as a great example. And then they would try to use that exploit because nobody, no vendor had been patching for it yet. It hadn't been fixed yet. It wasn't released. And so at the same time the hackers are releasing it is the same time that the companies who own that software are finding out that their own software is vulnerable. And so there was a lot of uh, surprises that were happening in, and, and that caused some lawsuits and some other things too. Yeah. If I recall correctly, 
uh, I agree that B- Back Orifice was probably one of the biggest ones that was was dropped. I think that was 99. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think in 2000, was it 16 or 17? It might have been 17 was the one where there were something like 20 or 30 different voting machines that were brought to DEF CON and every single solitary one of them was breached. And they were just like, yeah, we can hack all of these across the board. This is not an issue. All of them. And I think that definitely caused some pretty, pretty heavy controversy. Absolutely. It reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the ATM hacks that were done too, where you bring an ATM on stage and, you know, you physically plug a USB thing into it. 30 seconds later, it's spitting out money, Terminator 2 style, right? Just, and and by the way, that's what inspired that hack was I, I saw that happen in the movies and I had to make it real. And somebody went in and just made that, made that real. That was Barnaby. Um, and, uh, the um, showmanship that sort of comes along with let's uh, the, sh- the shock and awe that comes along with Defcon is pretty intentional, and 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 I and I view it as more as a theme than an instance. So and that's why I brought up you know ATMs and voting machines and 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 you put those things together. It's not about that that one vendor or those two vendors did it wrong. It's to say anybody with physical access to a device can get administrative access to it and make it do something like that. By the way, um, rest in peace, Barnaby Jack. Yeah. That was a good, 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 good call out. But yeah, I feel, feel, feel bad, but he had some amazing hacks when he was, when he was around. Anyway, yeah. you were saying. Yeah, no, uh, Barnaby was an influence for lots of us. Uh, he worked on medical devices, pacemakers, uh, to ATM machines. You know, he was, he was hardware hacker extraordinaire and, uh, inspirational and influential for multiple communities. Uh, and so it was, it was amazing to be able to, to work alongside people like that, uh, or at least see their work and, and understand bits and pieces of what they were sharing. But yeah, uh, we, you know what, and you know, you're touching upon something, um, you know, Barnaby passed away and there's actually quite a few, uh, people in the cybersecurity community that pass, uh, before their time, as we say, um, this field is difficult. It's challenging. It's filled with misfits, miscreants, and alternative folks that have come from completely different backgrounds, uh, non-traditional experiences, and in many ways have lived really hard lives. And that takes its toll. And the amount of security professionals, defenders, cybersecurity, uh, both attackers and defenders that have passed before their time, uh, I, I mean, I have a running list. I keep my own little memoriatorium and it's, it's my own memento mori, right? Uh, and, but, but it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, we lose a lot of folks pretty early. We, we do. It sucks. I mean, but the truth of the matter is um, it's completely true what you said previously. People come from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, literally everything. They also tend to exit into some interesting fields, Um I, I won't mention his specific name because I haven't I haven't talked to him about it. But one of our most prolific hackers back in the '90s and early 2000s is now, I believe, a professor of uh, I think it's neurology. Um, and he's just I mean, he literally went from electronic hacking. Isn't he had a undergrad? Everybody probably knows who I'm, all the hackers listening probably know who I'm talking about. But he had an undergrad in mathematics from MIT, and then eventually went into um, uh, I think it's either neurology or neuroscience, something of this nature, because basically it wasn't enough. He thought computers were way too easy to break into. So he was like, what can I make the brain do? And uh, he's doing really amazing now. Uh, is back back in academia at present, but just, just an incredible hacker. There have been other hackers 
um, very early on, one of them, one of them ended up in, in like a very religious cult for, a, for a, a quite a long time. Eventually, if I recall correctly, some hackers actually banded together to get him out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't doing good things for him, but I, you know, he, he made it through. So, you know, it's a, it is a community. It is, but we, we've, we've definitely had our losses and, um, some tragedies from time to time. Uh, I would argue even more than time to time. It, it does tend to happen. It's unfortunate, but yeah, it really just brings together a really wild band of people from every aspect of life all over the world, every country, um, every socioeconomic status, every color, every background, just, just about everything. So. Yeah. Uh, diversity at its finest, uh, in many ways. So yeah, I think uh, the only discrimination piece inside of cybersecurity is IQ, at least these days. Yeah. I even find though, um, if you take the, the learn it all approach versus the know it all approach, right. Um, like if I was going to pick out my new crew, right, I would probably, I'm more likely to pick somebody that's ready to learn all the things versus the 20, 30 year veteran that already claims to know all the things. Like we're likely to learn more and get further with that curiosity, with that exploration versus that um, sort of fixed experience and and lack of curiosity. And, and this also applies to my like hiring practices when I look at, you know, bringing staff into, uh, you know, my company, um, you know, somebody will come at me with a great resume, but if they don't show any intentions of learning and adapting, I am not interested in how much experience they have. I will absolutely take that new person who has very little experience that is very, very excited to learn all the things they possibly can and apply it hands down. I will pick that person. Right. And, and, um, I'm very transparent about that. I let people know that and I give them that feedback as we go through those processes too. (laughs) Um, yeah. I, I, I have roughly the same, um, same discrimination. I don't know if it's discrimination, but roughly the same filters, Mm -hmm. uh, when I am hiring for folks as well. Um, in this sense, I wanted to change topics just for a half second here away Mm -hmm. from hacking. We can come back to it. Sure. But you, you have a pretty, you've done some pretty amazing things for humanity just to yourself. You've got color and sort of these charitable organizations. Can we, can we talk about that for a second? Because there's some really amazing stuff that you've done. That's literally not really anything to do with computer science. Thanks. Uh, yeah. To, and, and again, it comes back to community, right? Um, it, these are endeavors, you know, nonprofit and philanthropic endeavors that um, I may not have been on that journey on if I was alone, if I was on my own. And so, uh, you know, working with others who have different experiences and different interests is absolutely key to that uh, sort of exposure and that inspiration. Um, you know, for, for me in particular, uh, I was adopted at birth. And uh, it, it was a v- kind of a different and a strange family upbringing. Um, I call it a family bush instead of a family tree because I've got parents in every direction that all divorced and remarried and step parents and so on. And, and so it, it fans out in all directions. Um, but uh, the, the side effect, if you will, or maybe a primary effect of that kind of an experience is this appreciation for being alive, is this uh, sense of gratitude for being here. You know, I was one mother's decision away from being alive. And uh, I support every person making their own choices, by the way, just to be super clear. Uh, but the but, but the gratitude that I have, that I was given an opportunity and that a family 
uh, took me in and raised me as their own and was gave me opportunities for education and and life um, comes that comes with a sense of gratitude for sure that uh, can be felt near daily if not more often and so uh, early on I I tried to find ways to sort of help others on their journeys whatever it might be but it wasn't very like formalized or organized. And it wasn't until uh, the tsunami hit Southeast Asia in 2004 that um, it really came to life. And a group of friends of ours uh, was living in the Pacific Northwest. And a, a group of friends and us got together and said, you know, what can we do? We put together like a meeting in our basement and said, come on over, let's figure it out. And uh, what, what can we do to help? And, you know, we brainstormed and we came up with lots of different ideas. And, you know, two weeks later, it, it's basically filtered down to the three people who are willing to do things. <laughs> like, just to be blunt, like, there's a lot of talk, but the people actually willing to do things, you know, it, it gets narrowed down pretty quick, like, um, and that's okay. People do what they can do when they can do it. It's not a, a judgment, but it's just a reality. And so uh, we decided that we would uh, fly to Sri Lanka. And part of that decision had to do with the uh, sheer volume of, uh, well, orphaned children. So a lot of the parents were working on the coast of Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit. They owned and operated hotels and restaurants and beach communities, a lot of tourism. And, and those are generally family owned. And so you would have, you know, entire families of adults that were essentially wiped out in one wave. And all of the children were further inland going to school. And so you had uh, this large portion of the population that was deeply impacted. Um, Sri Lanka was further away from the epicenter of the earthquake that actually started the tsunami. And it didn't get as much attention in the news as some of the other places did. And so it wasn't getting a whole lot of support, uh, public support. Uh, however, I found out a little later that the U.S. military was heavily involved in Sri Lanka. They were there almost immediately providing fresh water and helping clear debris and honestly some pretty nasty situations. And... Shout, shout out to the U.S. military. I mean, they, they get a bunch of flack for things, but I, I don't think that the, these are the types of things that don't end up making the news as often as they should, because they they're also quite a force for good in the world. So that's, that's, right. that's great. Great to hear. So when we show up and we're the second Americans they've ever met and the first ones were, you know, U.S. military. And, and quite honestly, a lot of the Sri Lankans thought I was a ghost because I'm very white. I have very blonde hair. And they were like, are you alive? You know, and so they literally thought I was a ghost. It was great. Um, and you, I had a, you, are a, you are a little bit pale, my brother. You're just a little, a little. pale. <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes, but still. Yeah. Yeah. So it was fun. Um, but the, the culture welcomed us. Right. And, and what we did is tried to find ways for the culture to help themselves. Right. So instead of us trying to be saviors, it was how can we help them rebuild themselves? And so uh, buying local, using local labor, doing everything locally versus importing a bunch of stuff was what we quickly learned was the way to go about it. And um, we sort of fell in love with the place and the culture and the people. And so we ended up investing in longer term programs, not just a single cleanup, but saying, what can we do long term uh, for and, and we we thought of ourselves as sort of like second responders, like first responders are, are triaging, you know, injured and 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 you know really nasty situations. Second responders are like rebuilders. So we decided let's build a school, let's build a medical facility, let's build you know anything we can, but more importantly, let's have them build it so it's theirs. 
And so we partnered and uh, we were able to find properties and, and, and be able to work with locals and, and it became uh, its own community of sorts. Um, you know, we had gone over to Sri Lanka a couple of times, you know, the first time we were there for a couple of months, right? And really get that thing off the ground. And, and so we're going back and forth a bit and we had thought about like, hey, should we be partnering with a nonprofit organization or how should we go about this? And we sort of explored for a while. And this was quite a while ago. Um, and finally, we decided we might as well form our own nonprofit. And so we decided to create our own organization uh, with this type of charter in mind, uh, with that kind of second responder mentality. Uh, but it but it spanned beyond just... Um, uh, you know, disaster relief, it, it started turning into long-term education programs and medical support and food support programs. And that, uh, and again, shout out to a little bit of the U.S. government. They saw what we were doing, responded to our request to create a nonprofit and immediately helped. They were like, ah, here's the paperwork you need to fill out. Here's how you can be tax exempt. And in fact, they, they allowed us to retroactively have that status for all the work that we had already been doing. Like it was really cool. Yeah. Oh, it was impressive. And, you know, we had this moment of like, wow, we're getting supported. This is cool. Um, and, and I, and, and that's a big deal to me, uh, being supported when, when you feel seen, when you feel supported, um, I mentioned, you know, my gratitude by being adopted and whatnot, but it also came with a lot of independence, you know, <laughs> the, when I turned 18, I was, I was on my own. I was figuring it out. Right. And, and, uh, part of that was choice, but part of that was not. And so, uh, there was just a limited support from my parents and, uh, and, and even from those parents of those around us. So we didn't have a lot to, uh, leverage from a generational perspective, whether it be wealth or support or, or community. So we had to create it ourselves. And a lot of that was done through art communities. A lot of that was done through nonprofit community. Um, but it, it evolved and has grown. It's still in place today. We still do work. We expanded and started doing work in Thailand uh, for quite a while there, uh, helping with orphanages and whatnot, especially um, near the Myanmar border. And you know, most of our work has been foreign. Um, we've done a few disaster relief things after like Hurricane Katrina, for example, down in Texas, we did some relief work there, uh, pretty minor, but, uh, the, the vast majority of our work has been in Southeast Asia for sure. It's been an incredible journey with a lot of ups and downs, but, uh, all of it has been extraordinarily worthwhile when you see that, that kid who grew up with an education that they wouldn't have had before and they come back years later, or they see you on the street because I'm very recognizable, they'll be like, oh my gosh, Scott, it's you, I remember. And, and they're just like, thank you. They literally just grab your hand, shake it, and just say thank you. And those types of moments, you're like, all right, game over, I'm done, <laughs> we're good. Right. <laughs> literally everything was worth it across mm -hmm. the board. That one moment probably made every every dollar spent, every hour spent, et cetera, more than worth it. But I mean, it's it's pretty amazing that you've been doing this stuff, brother. I mean, it's 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 an incredible thing that you've done. I understand... Microsoft is also like, I think they match a whole bunch of stuff, don't they, for, for charitable donations and whatnot. So again, shout out to your parent org. They've, they, they're pretty, pretty damn good at that. Like they're very philanthropic organization. They are. Uh, Microsoft's been great about it, but they're not alone. I mean, there's thousands of companies that have donation matching programs and, That's true. Uh, and, and there's, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a nonprofit organization called Benevity that actually organizes and sort of serves as a brokerage 
for uh, employers to be able to understand which nonprofits are legitimate and are tax deductible and so on. And so as a nonprofit, you register with Benevity. And as an employer, you consume their services and then employees can choose to donate to anyone that's in that system. And then employers will match it because it's already been vetted and proven. And so it's a, it's a wonderful ecosystem uh, that works really well for the employers. It works really well for the nonprofits works really well for the donors. They know that their money is going to something legitimate and it's being tracked and, and um, there, there's benefits all the way around. It's a very cool ecosystem. But yeah, those, those matching donation programs can make or break our projects for sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we'll mention it again at the end, but where, where can someone go to sort of, you know, to, 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 to look, look through your work and potentially donate, et cetera? Where can someone go? Yeah, we, we run a website. It's pretty simple, uh, coloraid.org. And uh, we're, we're more likely to post on places like Facebook, though. We do have a Facebook page for Color Aid, sure. and, and it's, uh, it's color spelled 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 the American way. I'm imagining C O L O R A I D dot org. Correct. That's right. That's right. Okay. And um, good good point. <laughs> um, you know, and we're we're simple. We're small. Like you know, it's just a few people trying to help a few people out. It's not a massive organization. Nobody gets paid. There's no employees, right? Or it's all volunteer driven. So that. That smallness is how we want to keep it. In fact, we put it in our charter. Nobody's allowed to get paid. Now, we will pay for services if somebody is like driving a truck or whatever. Like, okay, of course. Right. But in terms of like employees, no, the, the the entire nonprofit, the board, everybody, nobody gets paid. That's an incredible thing. That's an absolutely amazing thing. Um, I do want to turn the corner uh, back to some some. Uh, some internet typey stuff. So these days there's a lot of, a lot of chit chat around a lot of different things, right? I mean, obviously you've got the AI stuff and you know, the, the various services, et cetera. And then on top of that, you've got a lot of this web three stuff where it's like blockchain and crypto and all the rest of that type of jazz. The one thing that really hasn't come out for the average person, at least they don't think about it, is sort of IoT, and that's the Internet of Things. I'm not sure a lot of people understand, even though a lot of people actually probably do consume it. They, they, I'm not sure that they really understand how that works and what it is, et cetera. Do you wanna, do you wanna dive in on this sort of connect all things movement? That's right. That's right. And 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 connect all the things is a great way to describe uh, in in a very generic way. Um, and and I'll, first, I'll just say I'm not an expert in IoT, in Internet of Things. I, I know some things. I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, I know others that are far smarter and more experienced in this space than I am. But at a really broad level, uh, I like to describe it as all of the the devices that have some form of connectivity that's basically not your typical workstation, phone, or server, right? And and that basically means everything from coffee makers to refrigerators. Um, to voice assistants or speakers, you know, all of these uh, always on, always connected type of assets, these types of devices, uh, I think is a is is just a way to oversummarize all of the Internet of Things um, scope and landscape. And um, it's 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 been around for a while. Like it's not super new. A long time ago, we used to call them embedded devices. Right. And right. it was a it was a fancy way of saying it's got a circuit board, right? <laughs> and it's built in. <laughs> um, and, and then we started plumbing, you know, network interfaces like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or some other wireless protocol. Sometimes it was proprietary, you know, sometimes it wasn't, right? And and so these um, connected devices were, you know, manufactured by, you know, 
the company that wanted to make a more advanced device, the coffee maker, the refrigerator. And, and to be super clear, these companies aren't tech companies really. So for them to try and design and manufacture a circuit board, a motherboard, a chipset, a network stack, a cloud service for it to communicate with, I'm just going to call that risky at best, right? And it would it would be like me trying to go build that automobile, and I've never manufactured an automobile in my life. And sure, I know some parts, but really, you want me to go manufacture that and put that on the road? Mm. So an example might be something like... Um... I mean, I'll get, I'll give a maybe kind of in a scary example, but like when basically your your oven is connected to the internet and you've got an app, and the app effectively says to your oven, you know, start preheating right this second. And I I, I picked that one specifically because there's definitely you know possibility for abuse there, et cetera. But yeah. that's one example of an internet of things. Besides the other ones, like you could you could have like a an Alexa or a, you know a, a, a uh, you know, in, oh, I can't remember what the Google ones are, but like the Google little home devices, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, or even, you know, just about anything. A, a, a famous one is in, like a Nest, like your actual temperature control is, is connected to the internet. You can do everything via the app, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, going, tying this back to the industrial scenarios too, like my house is basically a miniature industrial complex. My sprinklers are connected to my Wi-Fi, right? I have a solar system, I have batteries, I have an electrical grid attached to the side of my house that I can control from an app on my phone. Uh, I drive a Tesla. My Tesla has an app on my phone, right? And so like all of these devices have connectivity and some of them have connectivity to each other, you know, washers, dryers, ovens, all of these things, right? This, the smart home devices, um, it creates a grid of, of surface area. It creates a grid of potential compromise. So where someone might think to themselves, you know, why would someone want to hack into my washing machine? Who would want to do that? And you sort of downplay it in your mind. But really what's happening is it's not just your washing machine. It's all the washing machines, right? It's all of the electrical grids. It's all of the sprinklers. And so having access to that many nodes at scale enables attackers and, and nefarious you know, actors to take advantage of those nodes and actually do things uh, on their behalf from your house, from your assets. And just to be clear, and because I think this is something that people get confused all the time. They're like, yeah, but why would they? I mean, there's a million washing machines. Why would they go after mine? It's like, that's, it's, that's not really the way hacking works. Most of the time, these people are, again, as, as Scott mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's about opportunity. It's not about explicit uh, attacking of one individual thing. That does happen. But realistically, I mean, it's a computer program. It, it can make 10,000, 100,000, a million connections in, a, you know, in, in the matter of a few seconds and figure out which ones respond. So when you say why yours, it's like because yours is the one that responded. There's it. It's not a. It's not a specific attack on you. It's it was just there. And and uh, internet technologies and companies make that easier. Like I can type in a very specially crafted Google query right now, and it's going to spit out a list of all of the washing machines running a particular version uh, that are already connected to the internet, and I can plug that into my my kit, my tool, my toolbox and say, okay, of the 30,000 ones that I found in North America, I'm going to go ahead and exploit 10,000 of them. And I'm going to load up my little piece of software. And then that little piece of software is going to go attack, let's say a government agency or an electrical grid 
or something that is far more damaging. And it looks like it came from your washing machine instead of their house or their network. And leveraging that, um, I call it surface area, but leveraging that footprint, right, is a lot of the intentions behind those distributed attacks is to make it very, very hard for defenders, right? So if I'm defending that water treatment plant and I'm getting attacked from 30,000 know, washing machines across the United States, Okay, I can I can block that I think, but who do I go after? I'm, what am I going to do? Call the police and say I'm under attack? The washing machines are out to get me? Like <laughs> what, what? What do you do? And so it makes it very difficult for uh, attribution, right? To be able to attribute that original source, uh, uh, that nefarious actor, and so. They don't want your washing machine. They want all the washing machines, right? And they, and and, and so it's not about you. Uh, good, good point, Dave. Like, it's about all of them. <laughs> well, it definitely makes sense. Um, speaking of this sort of, you know, public and private sector um, attacks and whatnot, um, it looks like there was a memo released. Was it was it this month or last month from the White House? There was something released um, having to do with this and. It looks like, looks like we need to take some action here, or at least someone does. You want to talk through that? I, I, I do. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell a little story. I think some background would help a no, lot. No, absolutely. Let's let's definitely do that. Okay. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna turn on the wayback machine. I'm gonna go back in time. Now, uh, and so if you look at sort of the advent of the internet, like how things originally got connected. We go back to US uh, defense program like ARPANET, Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. This was in the 1960s. They sort of built the original roads, as you will. Like I'm going to keep using my car analogies here. Bear with me. right? They, they sort of built the original internet roads and they got some things connected between some universities and some cities, but it was really a government controlled network. And it was for government purposes. Let's, let's be clear. We were dealing with the Cold War. We were worried about missiles. We had to connect systems in order to defend our country. That's how it got funded. I think it was a $60 billion adventure in the 1960s. Like It was huge. So anyway, they built some of that road infrastructure that eventually became the internet. And, and you fast forward into the mid 70s and you've got, um, you've got uh, folks like uh, Dr. Vint Kerf and Bob Kahn who sort of created the first versions of the transmission control protocol, TCP. And TCP was basically the first like vehicle standards Right. And so, oh, wheels must be this wide. You know, they have to have these certain capabilities and features to be able to drive safely on roads. You know, TCP became sort of the fundamental vehicle for how we get information around the Internet and, and international standard. And it's it's hard and takes years for international standards to come to life. And uh, these folks put in some really good, really good efforts around that. Um, again, uh, very sort of government funded and government centric. Uh, you fast forward a few years later, and um, you get folks like Dr. Paul Makapetris, I believe it was, who did uh, domain name service DNS. Like this is this is in the in the eighties, and in a way, domain name service for the internet is like the um, drawing the maps and providing directions. It's the GPS for our computers on how to get from one place to another. They give kind of like instructions on here's where you need to go, and and and. Um, and then I would got, argue we have, I would argue we have two GPSs. We've got domain name service for the end users, and then for us nerds, we've got BGP on the back end. <laughs> and, and that's and B, that's that's yeah. nerd talk. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. BGP was a huge part of this too. 
uh, again, invented, I think in the, in the late seventies, um, at least the first version of it. And, and, uh, you know, it, I, I, I treat BGPs like, like zip codes, you know, it's how you get well, I think from one zip code to another, but yeah. It's true. I think, I, I'm not sure if it was seventies. I know it was EGP in the eighties. And I think, I don't know when, when actual BGP well, succeeded EGP. Anyway, whatever we're talking about nerd stuff. It's basically how you traverse the internet. Right, right. Uh, it was 1994 that BGP four became like the standard, yeah. right? So it was early 90s, and 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 that modern version of the protocol basically enabled all these cars on all these roads to get to all the places they needed to be, and 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 all those cars are information, right? It's all of our computers and mobile devices being able to uh, connect from one place to another. Okay, um, in the in the 90s was when we saw this shift, um, ICANN was formed, right? The Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. It was a nonprofit. And, and ICANN was formed uh, in order to sort of create some governance over who's allowed to have what addresses on the internet. Like still using my roads and, and addresses kind of thing. And, and so, uh, but that's, a, that's, that's not a, a government agency, right? And so if you it look across- nasty nepotism in that agency, especially early on, but whatever. Oh, yes. No, the, I'm not saying it was a great agency. What I'm saying is, is it wasn't government owned. And, Correct. And so if you look across the late 80s, mid 90s, 1990s, you saw this shift from uh, ownership and governance from the US government to private sector companies, nonprofit organizations. And that sort of unleashed the internet on the population on the population, we all got to participate in it. We all, and ISPs started flourishing and all, you know, internet service providers, when I say ISPs, so the, the, the AOL and the, you know, the dial up, you know, industry went huge in that time frame. CompuServe product. That's right. Everybody had a CD and yeah, we turned them into coasters, but we, you know, anyway, the, 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 it was kind of awesome in a way. It was an exciting time because we were starting to connect everybody and you didn't have to be in a government agency to do it, right? Anybody could do it. So anyway, uh, commoditizing, if you will, uh, access and, and commoditizing um, connectivity between countries. It was huge. So I'm, I'm painting this picture because I want to talk about the shift from government control to private sector control. And, and how that had to evolve over decades in order to get to that place in the 1990s. And once that sort of happened, the government lost control. Like, let's be blunt. They couldn't protect that network anymore. But if you look at US government laws, a lot of them are based around protecting companies and protecting citizens. You know, you look at our three-letter agencies and most of their job is to make sure that we stay safe and that companies don't get bombed and rocketed and so on. It was very physical in nature though. It was, oh, you run a company on US soil. We have a responsibility to police and protect you from threats, mostly from the outside, but some inside. And so those, those, that government responsibility about protecting citizens, protecting companies, couldn't be upheld in the cyber theater. So it was very, very hard for the FBI to protect my internet company from cyber attack from foreign agencies, right? They just can't. They don't have the resources to do it. And in many cases, they don't have the skills, the capacity, the charter. And so uh, a lot of these new White House memos, just been two. Uh, Trump released one when he was in office. And it actually was a decent memo. And, and, uh, and I say, actually, sorry, I don't mean to sound so sarcastic there, but uh, the, the memo sort of pointed out 
uh, and amplified the need that uh, something the Obama administration had created, which was the National Institute for Cybersecurity Education, NICE for short. And this was a framework and a formula with funding in order to add uh, cybersecurity education materials and programs uh, for both public and private sector to be able to consume and take advantage of, which was amazing. So here we have governments coming in, providing resources, advancing the education. And in a way, they sort of started the movement uh, with, with dollars to say, hey, companies, you're going to need to protect yourself. And we're going to do our best to protect our infrastructure too and provide some form of support for you to protect yourselves. But you're going to have to train and educate your workforce. In fact, Jeff Moss wrote one of the original papers for the uh, Department of Homeland Security for the need for cyber defense education, Jeff Moss being the founder of DEF CON that we were speaking about sounds, earlier. Yeah, spot on. Sounds right. Right. And uh, I got really, really interested in, this, in these papers, right? I wanted to understand how are we advancing cybersecurity education because it's a people problem. How do we educate people and put them in roles that enable appropriate levels of defense? And... Uh, Anyway, I'm very excited about these frameworks. I get very excited about these programs, and I try to encourage people to look them up and, and find out how they can participate. They hold public conferences. Anybody can go to them. And if you're a company or an individual and you want to learn about it, you can learn about it. If you want to contribute to the body of knowledge and you can contribute, you can run classes. It's very open, and I love that element about it. Okay, so... Um, Obama did some funding with NICE. Trump amplified the need for government regulation. And, and this is not something you typically hear from that side, right? They needed some government regulation around cybersecurity defenses for US population and infrastructure. It became a critical infrastructure memo. And it was, how do we protect our water? How do we protect our sewage? Uh, and I, I keep bringing up sewage because waste is a huge deal for um, ecological impact. If those systems are compromised, it kills entire uh, ecosystems. Uh, we actually had a cybersecurity incident where a sewage treatment plant was hacked, gates were released, and raw sewage was released into a massive waterway, and it killed a huge fish population here in America. It was, it was it, it, uh, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so when, when was that? Oh, when this was, was like five years ago or something, six years wow. ago. I'd have to look it up. Again, doesn't make big news. But I mean, releasing raw sewage directly into yeah. you know a, a waterway, dev devastating for that yeah. uh, ecological uh, environment. Anyway, um, and you could you could do that at scale. You can do it at different places, but that's just one example. Okay, so uh, Trump says you know releases the memo says we got to be better about this, and and now a new memo comes out under Biden administration, and I'm gonna. I'm going to do the too long, didn't read version, right? The TLDR basically says, this is hard. Hey, private companies, you have a responsibility to help protect U.S. citizens. So it's not just the government's job as it always has been. It's now your job too. Now, what does that mean? Okay, there's lots more work to do. There's frameworks to be rolled out. There's more information to be shared in this space. Uh, you know, I work at Microsoft, people work at Twitter, people work at all these different agencies, right? All, or I shouldn't say agencies, all, all these different uh, private companies. Um, and we're trying to figure out, aside from us trying to be good humans and good citizens, like, what are the rules? Like, what are the requirements? And that's when it gets real. Right, that's not just like my best effort anymore. That becomes a requirement. And so, you know, at Microsoft, we run data centers. Data centers are almost considered critical infrastructure at this point. 
they actually I don't know how he, I was going to say, I don't know how you can not consider them critical infrastructure. Anybody who doesn't clearly doesn't understand what a data center. By the way, for the listeners, because I, I I thought this was a somewhat common term. It turns out it's 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 not as common. A data center is a gigantically huge warehouse. I mean, it's massive. Hundreds of thousands of square feet of, uh, of warehouse, sometimes multiple floors, et cetera, with a gigantic amount of industrial power coming in, internet providers literally coming in from different sides of the building. I'm not kidding you because they it's... It's literally what happens if if someone with a backhoe snaps the lines on one side. We want to be able to go out the other side. I'm not kidding. So multiple different internet providers, usually out of various different corners of the buildings, different power providers that they can get them. They're usually on two separate grids, if that if that's possible. Um, and then beyond that, it's just it's somewhat cooled, but all again, that's that's sort of changed uh, somewhat recently. Um, but beyond that, it's uh, it's basically these seven foot tall racks of machines just as far as the eye can see um it just, it's it's a crazy amount of blinky lights you stay in there long enough you start to go a little crazy i'm pretty sure scott and i have experienced that at least 40 or 50 times back in the day but yeah that's i mean that's basically what the internet is when you're wondering like where's google where's where's microsoft like where are these things um the answer is yeah usually like in the middle of nowhere um so, uh, Microsoft's got a bunch of stuff in Tequila. Um, uh, uh, well, obviously these days, almost everywhere, but like the Bay Area, it's not all in the Bay Area. And even when it is, it's usually very remote San Jose. Um, on the East Coast, you'd, you'd think of something like Herndon, Virginia, outside of DC. Um, these various places that just have these massive, massive places of, of uh, warehouses. Um, Ohio is a, is a popular one these days. Basically anywhere there's not things that are prone to natural disaster and whatnot is a lot of a lot of spots where you can find sort of the the bulk of the internet as it were yeah there's a, there's a few pieces of criteria you need lots of power cheap uh you need very few natural disasters uh you need ping as we call it you need pipe you need you need fiber and connectivity right and uh and it helps to have some tax breaks too if you're going to operate a data center in a particular area. So for sure, so there's, there's, there's tons of factors that go into data center locations. And yes, there's uh, just hundreds of them, uh, multiple companies worldwide, uh, just about every country you can imagine. Um, and so when I, uh, let's see, where were we? We're talking about public and private sector. That's right. So Correct. Um, the White House division is sort of creating this, bow wave movement of saying, okay, private sector, you have responsibility. Now, what is that responsibility and what are the what are the requirements behind that? Who's going to govern it? Who's going to manage it? You know, a lot of those things need to be figured out, but oftentimes these White House memos start with a need to create departments. Go create this committee, go create this department, go investigate this thing, come back with a cost analysis, tell us what it's going to take. And and so uh, you know, this this one was broken up, I believe, into four four different parts. So we're likely to see one or more committees get formed in order to pull together a plan in order to achieve the vision that's sort of outlined in these memos. Um, and, you know, I do my best not to make fun of these memos too much. There's some parts of them where I read it and I'm like, do you have, do you have any idea what, did you talk to anybody when you wrote this down? Like what happened? How did this get created? And, I'm sure there's very smart people doing really smart things and, and producing the language the best they can uh, in the time that they're given. There's always constraints. Um, but, the, but the general concept, it's hard for me to disagree with. Like I, as a private company member, 
I'm not super interested in the government controlling everything I do, or nor do I have a lot of um, confidence that in any external organization, government or not, has the capability to sort of protect and defend my company across international borders. They, they, they can't, right? They don't have jurisdiction. So right. as a global company, I got to think about it very differently than what can the U.S. government do to protect me? You know, <laughs> like that's, 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 a, that's a thing I have to approach, uh, we have to approach in a very different way. And just about any major internet tech company I think has the same problem, regardless of what country they're founded in or where their headquarters are located. Um, you know, the cyber theater isn't limited to political boundary landscapes. The map that you see on the wall that shows all these great lines between all these countries means absolutely almost nothing to an adversary, to an attacker, to, to those groups. You know, those things don't really matter where they physically sit and is there extradition, uh, you know, if they were to be caught, you know, those things matter. <laughs> but um, when it comes to internet borders, they don't exist the same way our political borders do pretty much at all. So we have to, sure. the, the strategy around uh, defense, uh, cyber defense for these kinds of assets is significantly different than a physical security strategy is the bottom line. And there's a lot of nuance and detail inside of that. <laughs> No, I mean, there's no question about any of that stuff. I, it's 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 a relatively confusing domain, but we need, again, experts like yourself, kind of working on this stuff. And I'm glad you're I'm glad you, glad you're interested in this and actually uh, make, making some effort effort towards it. What does this mean, though? So what I, we we sort of went through the the framework of what they're attempting to set up. What does this mean for Americans or for that matter, humanity? Well, like how, how do we, how do we internalize this as human beings going forward? I, I think it is fundamental. It almost goes back to one of our first conversations here. It, it means it's about collaboration. Nobody can do this alone. No one agency, no one company, no one internet service provider, no one backbone provider, no one anything is really going to be able to effectively defend alone. And so collaboration, I think, is what it really means. It means collaborate. What does that mean, like, tangibly or tactically? I think it means a lot of information sharing. And uh, I'll give some examples. So uh, right now, part of my charter is actually sharing with multiple companies, multiple organizations, uh, tried, true, proven uh, industrial network defense controls and, and designs. So I literally open the book up on industrial network designs and defense, share them with other companies, in some cases, my competitors, but I have permission to do this, right? We, and, and the idea here is um, these are not competitive advantage capabilities. These are common capabilities that should apply at, think of them as like min bar requirements. So again, I'll use vehicles. Everybody has safety standards. You have to have a seatbelt. You have to have an airbag. You have to have X, Y, and Z in order to be sold here in the United States, right? I think we're getting to a place where we're going to have similar cybersecurity requirements for our industrial systems. If you want to participate in electrical grid, you have to have X, Y, and Z controls in place. If you want to participate in water treatment, you have to have X, Y, and Z controls. And soon, I think it will be, if you want to be a data center and you want to operate you know, an internet service, you have to have X, Y, and Z cybersecurity controls in place in order to protect your, your citizens. So, so this, this seems like it's net new for sort of 
public sector and, and industrial applications. The reason why I say that is because this has existed for quite some time in the banking industry. I mean, we've got PCI for credit cards. You know, there's there's the, the SAS 70 requirements for various things. Obviously, you've got public companies need to go through Sarbanes-Oxley, among other things. Um, I'm not all of that is cybersecurity, don't get me wrong, but like there's a there's a very large security component in each one of those. And it seems like, I mean, was this, did we just miss the boat on this? Like, oh yeah, no one's going to go after, no one's going to go after water treatment. Honestly, if I was going to do warfare against another country and, you know, dropping, dropping a little bit of scruples here, yeah, I'd probably attack the infrastructure first. That's, that's an easy, easy way of, of, of demoralization and, and really creating some chaos without actually killing anybody. Although the net result could be, unfortunately, I'm just, yeah. You know, if I was to pontificate for a moment here, I would say a lot of the drivers come from financial motivators, right? So early on, you know, robbers would rob a bank, right? They weren't robbing your house as often as they were going after the bank because the bank was where all the money was at. So banks created vaults and they created controls in order to protect, you know, the physical money and the gold that was stored in the in the safe, right? And... Um, you know, and, and maybe this is more than, than the United States, but here in America, you know, we have a very capitalistic society. We're very financially driven. Um, the vast majority of our risk management strategies are associated with financial constructs. You look at the insurance systems, you look at the banking systems, uh, you look at any of our transaction, our financial transaction systems, stock exchanges, so on. Like all these financial systems are... a a lot of where our risk management strategies were developed. And so it was how to protect money, how to save money, how to prevent money from leaking or being stolen. You know, the, the Superman two scenario of, you know, stealing a, a couple of cents off of every, Oh, Superman three, my mistake. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of that one. Okay. Right. And, and it was a hacker stealing, you know, change off of the end of every transaction or whatever and collecting that. Um, Rich, R Richard, Richard Pryor doing, doing that hack. It was, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, Anyway, my whole point, I think, is follow the money. And if you look throughout history, a lot of it has been about how to protect money and how to protect your money, how to, how to, how to stop it from being stolen and so on. And so um, where we had large financial institutions and transactions is where a lot of the risk management and cybersecurity defensive and compliance requirements started coming to life because there was all kinds of fraud. So, But you look at water treatment, there's not a lot of money in water treatment. People aren't making billions of dollars like you do in the oil industry or like you do in some of these other industries off of water treatment and sewage treatment. But you look at things like incarceration systems, they're quite profitable. You look at things like uh, uh, energy, electrical, uh, specifically around oil and gas, uh, you know, for the energy sector, very profitable. So risk management techniques and therefore security control, cybersecurity control techniques are applied in order to protect those processes, uh, business continuity. It was all like all cybersecurity around those financial systems and those energy systems was sort of predicated on the need for business continuity because every second, every minute, every hour of downtime was hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of dollars. Okay, that gets the attention of any C-level exec at any company when they're like, I'm sorry, what? A cybersecurity hack? If it disrupts my business for more than four hours, I lose X number of millions or billions. 
Now they start investing in cyber defense. So I wouldn't say it was missed. What I would say was, is it was focused, right? Those cybersecurity controls were focused on those particular energy uh, industries in order to protect those revenue streams, in order to protect those processes. Okay, now that we see attacks that directly impact human life, even though it's not financially a smart move in order to protect a water treatment system, we know it's the right thing to do, right? And, and so you end up injecting cybersecurity controls in that space where it historically has not had the same levels of investment that you would see in like oil and gas and, 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 and other places. So that's, that's my soapbox uh, standing uh, pontification on, on perspective there. Now, now we're catching up. The industrial side is, is, is catching up. It's in the news. Uh, when I say it's in the news, I mean the hacks are in the news. And the fear is sort of real. Like we're sort of scared, especially if you live uh, on the grid, as we say, and you're dependent on public water, you're dependent on public energy, you're dependent on public waste and so on. If, if, if you have dependencies on those systems as an individual, as long as they're working, everything seems fine. But again, when they break down, you mentioned New York with the trash situation, like great example, it's very tangible. It's in your face and disease starts becoming a problem. You know, if we don't have clean water, like the ripple effects of a lack of clean water in a densely populated urban area is uh, huge. Um, and we see this with electrical too. Take a heat wave and the power goes down, people die. I mean, that's yeah. just bottom line. They can't cool. And anyone who's susceptible, you know, are, are having health problems and, 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 and potentially die. So um, the seriousness of these industrial systems has sort of been pushed to the forefront now that they've started being connected. And, and what I mean by that is I'm gonna tie this back to the IoT conversation. So the Internet of Things. Internet of Things type of technology has started to get applied to industrial scenarios. And I'll use some examples. So take like a, a power meter. Everyone, most people have a, a, some sort of power or energy meter like on the side of their house where it shows you how much gas you're consuming or how many kilowatts of energy, of electricity you're consuming. So these power meters have gotten smart. And what I mean by that is they've now attached an embedded device with its own network connection that can communicate wirelessly just like a mobile phone. So most of the new power meters getting installed on the side of your house or at a data center or at a water treatment plant have a network connection and they phone they, home. They literally just did that. I'm talking three or four weeks ago for my, I think it's already done on my power, but they just did that on the gas meter. The guy literally came to the door and he's like, Hey, I want to put this thing on there. And I was like, great, do what you got to do, buddy, <laughs> whatever you need. But yeah. And, and so there's multiple positive effects for that. Like some of those drivers uh, literally have to do with driving. So instead of someone physically driving around in a vehicle, checking the meter, writing it down in a logbook, taking it back to, you know, uh, to headquarters and then, you know, creating a bill for you. Now it's always connected. We always know, you know, that utility provider always knows how much water you've consumed, how much power you've consumed, and the bills are all automated. And it's just, it's like magic happens. You know, people aren't driving around checking meters when you have smart meters installed. So those smart meters are independent communication systems. They don't connect to my home internet. Like I'm not the internet service provider for them. They've got their own wireless network. They pretty much are like mobile phones. They've got their own connection. They've got their own operating system. They communicate with some cloud node and communicate data back. And 
the utility provider can also update those meters, change the settings on those meters. So, you know, meter is an example of a read-only operation. But let's talk about a write operation where you can perform a config change. Let's say the meter is more than a meter and it's a valve and it can turn the system on or off. Let's say you don't pay your power bill. Now all they have to do is let the automated system kick in, say, oh, Scott didn't pay his power, power bill for you know a month of March. Starting on April 15th, we're gonna turn off his power. And it's and it and it and the smart control system has the ability to do that. Right. Instead of instead of going to like the, the local power node and physically disconnecting the actual uh, uh, you know, current from your house, they can just sure. do this remotely. So you can do it with power, you can do it with water, you can do it with, you know, gas, you can do it with anything that you connect a smart device to or an IoT device. So we, we sort of nickname these things industrial IoT or IIoT, right? And so these industrial IoT though, again, uh, imagine a gas company. Do you think they're really good at designing operating systems and cloud services and encrypted communication nodes? That's not their forte, it's not their skill set. Did they maybe hire some third party to build that for them and then bolt it on to their system? Very likely. As as cheaply as possible, of course, with as little effort expended as possible, yeah. among other things. It's always the I I mean, we're we're talking about these one things, but it's always the scariest thing when they're talking about the space shuttle. It's like, yeah, the space shuttle was built by the lowest bidder. It always just freaks me out every time. But basically we're talking about um you know, the gas company not being a software company, but yet them being reliant on software and these Internet of Things devices that they almost assuredly had no hand in designing, that that they outsourced to a third party, didn't really have the ability to sort of like, you know, do penetration testing and, and the various things that we would do as counter hackers to, to, to make sure that these things are safe and secure and reliable. That's right. Quite a few years ago, yeah, I started cracking jokes that I said, I wish we called it the secure Internet of Things, because maybe we would have gotten off on a better foot than than just the Internet of Things, right? Um, like if we had uh, had put some design work into ensuring that these types of devices have security control capabilities built to them, built into them by default, that then enable like a utility company to be able to turn on encryption for communications or turn on multi-factor authentication in order to perform that uh, valve change to turn power on or off or water on or off, right? Like these are some of the, I, I call them the basics, right? There should just be some fundamental basic security control capabilities that are applied to any of the IoT or IIoT uh, classes of assets. And um, some companies are better at this, by the way. I don't mean to paint this giant broad brush stroke and say, oh, all IoT is bad. No, there's actually some companies that are developing IoT products and platforms with security in mind and trying to use security as a market differentiator for selling their, their product. And it's, and it's starting to percolate and resonate with uh, utility companies and with uh, device manufacturers. And, and, and more so, I think, in the consumer space. like. Consumers are concerned about their TVs listening to them, right? And about their smart speaker, you know, being hacked and, you know, being leveraged to like access their shopping cart or whatever. And so the consumer space, you see more investments in cybersecurity control capabilities, um, but it's still under the management and control of the provider. It's not like as a user, I'm accessing the security configuration settings of my television, right? Like it's just done by Samsung. It's just done by Sony, 
they they own all those settings. I mean, yeah, maybe if I dig deep into the menu somewhere in my TV, it might have something like that. But I mean, like, have you have you looked at the privacy settings on Facebook? I mean, I don't know. There's probably 40, 50 knobs I can turn there to adjust or tune my privacy settings. And every time Facebook does an update, all those settings are reverted back to their last known default or whatever. So I'm, I'm sort of talking trash for a second there. I should be careful. I'm not trying to. I'm saying it's complex. I'm saying it's hard and it's often out I of mean, the user's control. I'll, I'll go in a different direction. I mean, I'll talk some trash for a half second. Most of the TVs basically force you to agree to an agreement where it's like, if you use anything on the internet, on our TV, we're going to spy on absolutely every single solitary thing you do across the board and you give up all rights. The end. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Yeah. The, the, as far as I've looked and I've looked at uh, the bulk of, um, of social networking stuff again, and this is something that I've always, you know, I, I've, I've said this multiple times on various episodes of the podcast is the, you know, the socials are really trying to get your data because they want to sell you advertising. They have no, they have no need whatsoever to ever sell your data. In fact, quite the opposite. They would do anything possible not to sell your data. If they can make money any other way, they will not sell your data because it's, it's proprietary. That's what they want. Whereas the TVs, it's like, no, they're definitely going to sell it specifically to the cable providers and everybody else and sort of that ecosystem is outside of there. So yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the of the internet connected TVs. Some of them are pretty interesting, though. Um, but I use I use like an external box with much much more uh, much much. I my I basically I don't hook the the t the internet up to my TV. I hook it up to a box that goes into my TV, and then the box itself is actually much more toned down. You can, by the way, you can do that with like an, an Xbox or or a PS5 or whatever. Like you can use that as your your smart TV. They have almost all the apps and everything. So. Just an FYI for folks out there, but you were saying, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's a great point. Um, you know, it, kind of in a nutshell, there, it's it's you know, privacy and cybersecurity are complex for the consumer, and and as companies, you know, as providers, we need to do better in terms of protecting those consumers, and 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 I'll, and I'll bring it back to the industrial scenarios, and protecting those utilities, right especially where there isn't a known experienced set of disciplined cybersecurity professionals in that field. So back to crossing the streams, Ghostbusters style. If I'm over here as a cybersecurity person who has some experience with it and knows how to build pretty secure networks, and I partner with this other person over here who knows a lot about electrical grids, but very little about cybersecurity, put the two of us together and we're likely to build a fairly secure industrial network for electrical grids. And, and that's exactly what I've been able to, to, to really start doing for the last three or four years. And that's both in, the in Microsoft and outside of the company. And so this partnership has extended to uh, collaboration with the device manufacturers, the people who make the power meters, right? Think, uh, you know, Schneider Electric and Siemens and Rockwell. These are major companies that manufacture industrial devices that are in use. You might even see these names in an elevator or in a building, you know, you know, where you see, oh, Schneider Electric built this, built this elevator, Westinghouse, you know, the, these, these, yeah. these are industrial manufacturers and they produce lots and lots and lots of different kinds of devices. And the vast majority of them now are creating these devices that are now internet connected. And so we're trying to really partner closely with them and show them how to inject 
cybersecurity control capabilities into their network connected devices and how those can participate in an ecosystem where I as a like a I'm a consumer of those devices I buy them right so so as a consumer of those devices I can ensure that the way that I own them operate them and maintain them is done in the in the most secure way possible but I need these devices to have certain capabilities and if they don't have these basic capabilities I can't go configure them if the power meter doesn't have encryption as a feature, I can't turn it on. And right. so like, that's where I'm sort of joining forces, sometimes with my competitors, where we're saying, hey, there's some common ground here where we just need some basic security controls. If we go together and push on the vendors to produce those things, we create a demand signal that's large enough where they start producing those features. And to be clear, these companies are actually interested in changing. I'm not trying to say that they're resisting us. You know, I've been meeting with uh, these companies and in the last few years, quite a few of them have been investing in dedicated cybersecurity workforce talent as employees in their companies. And so now I've got a partner in crime or a partner in defense, I should say, right? <laughs> to actually ensure that I as a customer and them as a provider are able to produce these kinds of capabilities. And, and that ripple effect means that those devices, they make it into the high rises and into the buildings and into the water treatment plants and into the electrical grids. And of course, into the data centers that I'm trying to secure. And so I love that level of, of impact, that ripple effect, where if we can inject good security controls into, into these devices, and then those can be applied in multiple industries and multiple countries, like that, that's exciting. That, that's where I get super excited and I get all amped up and you'll see me get all crazy like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, you definitely sound passionate. By the way, uh, the person I'm going to see in the UK in, in May is actually uh, former Schneider Electric. So shout out to Bianca on that one. Ooh, um, nice. That said, speaking of getting amped up and excited, I did want to dive into a story from back in the day. Scott, feel free to jump in when you when you want to want to leap in. But there's one thing that, again, I'll just share a, a small piece of internet history. Uh, Scott and I worked worked at Hotmail, um, so. You're welcome for all the crazy hotmail addresses from way back in the day. Sorry um, about the spam. MS oh yeah, sorry about the spam. Uh, building up um, MSN and the Microsoft networks, among many, many other things. But I would argue that one of the coolest days we ever had was we ended up going to this weird building on the Microsoft campus that no one had ever heard of. And we were like, what is this? We walked in there and there were these guys asking us, all right, how do we, how do we build this sort of global network? And we've got all these servers and everything like that. And we were like, well, we already, we already have all that stuff. I, what are you looking to do? And they were like, yeah, you know what? Instead of this, why don't we just show you what we're building? And then, and then, you know, maybe you'll get a better idea. And so we walked into this room and there were four controllers laying on the ground and there was a prototype Xbox. Now this was, I think it was the first gaming device with an actual ethernet port that you could you could literally hook to it was definitely the first major one um but it was clear it wasn't black like the original ones where it was absolutely crystal clear you could see all the parts inside of it there were four controllers and then what we ended up doing was we played 16 way halo before before this thing was even released and i gotta tell you that was one of the best experiences i ever had i was just i was in absolute shock almost the entire time about I can't believe we're going to be able to do this. Like land parties have taken on a completely different story now, which is where you hook up computers and play games. Now you could just, you know, now there's four players 
on like one machine, uh, four different quadrants on a TV. And then beyond that, you could hook these things up. So it would go 16 way. And they were like, yeah, but that's one way of doing it. But what we really want to do is build this service called Xbox Live. And that way you can hook up, we're going to hook up every game all together. And so that was sort of the birth of what I would, I think it was the birth of basically console level online gaming. I know it already existed for computers, but um, you remember that's, do you remember doing that? That was unbelievable. Oh, I, I absolutely remember. Uh, and, and the program was very hush hush. There was a whole lot of secrecy and um, what I was really thankful for was that they actually invited us to help, right? If, and, and this, again, crossing the streams, you get a bunch of gaming people and a bunch of console people to try and build a network. They're probably not going to be super great at that, right? So the fact that they pulled us in as networking people and said, hey, we're trying to build this network. It's going to be complex. It's going to be hard. Uh, we need low latency. We need high bandwidth. You know, these, these these were commodities that were a bit hard to come by at the time. A lot of I people- I remember. I think I remember us literally convincing them you need to use UDP, not TCP. And they were like, well- but TCP is what the internet runs on. We were like, it's not what you want for gaming. <laughs> right. And and for those listening, uh, one of the main differences between TCP and UDP is, is UDP is sort of one way where you just sort of fire a whole bunch of information and hope it makes it, where TCP is sort of two-way, where there's a handshake and a negotiation, and are you sure you want it? And it's this big, and it, you know, can you accept that or not? And so TCP has um, more delays and more latency and anybody who does any gaming knows that latency is kind of the enemy. And so you want high speed, low latency scenarios for gaming. And you're absolutely right. Like we we got on that console and we were like, uh, the lag time here makes this nearly unplayable. You, you probably need to move forward with UDP. And this is before UDP had forward error correction, right? And so yeah. there was, yeah. there was, That's there was a really good point, right? This, there was a lot of glitchiness, right? Or mistakes to be made. And uh, it took quite a few iterations. But the fact that that team engaged us, asked us, let us understand, and and then listened when we gave them advice, and they ended up releasing a UDP version for point-to-point gameplay. And, and, and if I recall, the original design was all the traffic was being routed through the data centers and then back all out to the users. It. And Every we said, single, whoa, yeah, yeah, you got to go point-to-point, meaning that uh, user in house A can communicate directly with user in house B, and they can... They can directly communicate with each other without having to go through some central choke point bottleneck. Uh, I mean, we've since fixed that now just because there's there's data centers literally everywhere. But at the time, they're like, we're just going to route everything back to Seattle. Hold the phone. Everything back to Seattle and TCP. Not, not sure. Not sure that this is the right way to do things. That's right. Uh, but they yeah. listened and they adapted and, and the protocol got significantly better latency went down throughput actually goes up because you don't have as much overhead right uh with with udp um but yeah i i do remember that i also just fun uh i remember us playing halo which was super glitchy in that in that demo version where you know you could you could blow somebody up and they would die in midair and be like hovering you know 20 feet above that warthog or whatever (laughs) It's true. I think, I think, I think Mike was the one, our, Mike, by the way, being our boss. So shout out to Mike. Yeah. I think that he ended up dying at one point and then a whole bunch of code actually spat out on the screen. So it wasn't just a glitch. It was literally like, it just, it aired out even in front of the graphics. And it was like, Whoa, what happened? But it was still amazing. We, Nothing we like having... that even remotely existed at the time. Not even close. Yeah. I mean, the, 
the closest thing I can think of is is Sega had done a Dreamcast thing where they inserted a modem into the back and you could dial up, but it wasn't for like real time gameplay, like a first person shooter yeah. like that. It was like so you could get like updates for a map or you could share like scoreboard stuff. And there was some trivia game you could play online, but it wasn't anything like a Halo type experience with multiplayers, real time, you know, graphics and the whole thing. It was very, very different. Yeah, it was an exciting time. Oh, that was a great time. That was, that was some fun stuff back in the day. If I, so that said, if there is one technology that you could will into existence without any effort whatsoever relating to your field, what would that be? So so this is where I'm going to speak out of my my knowledge and experience base for sure. So I I, I think it would be the implementation of quantum entanglement for communications okay so now this is stuff that it's way out of my field but uh the the best way i know how to describe quantum quantum entanglement is the way einstein sort of described it where he, he called it spooky action at a distance so where we have two particles like photons that uh you know you you sort of separate with polarity and just think of one as positive and one as negative and if you affect the positive one there's almost a uh, zero latency lag for the effect that it has on the negative one. And so these two particles become entangled in such a way that they're, they're spooky in terms of the way that they maintain synchronization. And so I immediately think of communications. I think of networking. And uh, today, all of all the vast majority of our formulas to describe throughput, which is how much data can we get from point A to point B within a period of time. It's a function of bandwidth and latency, right? So all of our formulas are based on those two major factors. And, and bandwidth, think of that as like how fat or wide or big your hose is to get water through. And so if you have a really fat, wide hose, you know, you can get a lot of water through it. If it's really thin, you can't get as much water through it. And, and latency, how long does it take to get from point A to point B? How fast is the water flowing through the hose? And so the um, quantum entanglement concept sort of takes latency to zero. And so when I think about zero latency, I think about subspace communications, you know, how we communicate between the moon or Mars or wherever we're traveling. I think about the latency that's currently induced with our, um, any of our space comms, right? They're, they're traveling as fast as they can with the technology we have, but imagine a zero latency communication system or, in, or near unmeasurable zero, right? I think that to would be clear. Yeah, to be clear for the user, the speed of light is not, or so that for the listener, the speed of light is not as fast as you think it is. Basically, it's a full second at the absolute speed of light. It's a full second from the from uh, to, to get from the moon to the Earth, and I believe it's seven minutes from the sun and back. And again, we 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 transmit these things roughly at the speed of light. It's not quite, but it's pretty damn close to the speed of light on Earth as well. And yet, it's still three hundred and fifty milliseconds um, west coast. America to, to India and back. That's, I mean, 350 milliseconds. It sounds, well, that's really fast. It's like, it is and it isn't. It is mm -hmm. and it isn't. I, I understand why people would say it is. But again, uh, some of the top gamers in the world, if we just go back to the gaming for a half second, some of the top gamers in the world can, they can literally feel less than 20 milliseconds, uh, any, anything a 20 millisecond lag or greater, they can feel it instantaneously. So it is noticeable. 
So when I think about an advanced technology like that, you know, perhaps taking advantage of something like a quantum entanglement, harnessing quantum entanglement as a method to communicate with near zero latency, that would change all of our formulas and all of our equations for how we handle bandwidth and throughput. Uh, uh, and, and so that's exciting to me. Now, uh, I, I don't know how that would actually work. How would my mobile device have a quantum entangled particle in it that's somehow linked with another quantum entangled particle sitting in some data center or some cell tower? And, and you know, would, would my future Xbox have one of these particles? Would my mobile device have one of these particles? Would, would our computers and so on? You know, uh, the, the, there's, a, there's two major reasons why I think this is a super exciting space. One is the latency piece that we discussed. The other is the security piece. The ability to intercept the communication between two quantum entangled particles is currently unknown. It would be effectively impossible. Well, I we mean, at know. least for... I, true, but we we don't understand the entanglement in the first place. I mean, basically, if you've got one particle 100 billion miles away and the other particle and you turn one to the right, the other one instantaneously turns to the right. We don't understand how the information is being passed. But there is also a theory that you can't transmit information in that fashion. I understand that you, you're allowed to will this technology into existence, but That's, the theory is, at least at present, that that entanglement alone is not enough to transmit information. That's that's right, and and that's why I, I, if we're going to fantasize, I'm going to fantasize, yeah. right? Like, why not? <laughs> um, and and you know, one of the massive limitations that we have around any sort of quantum technology is the measurement alters its its state, and so. You know, the idea that I can measure a quantum entangled particle right now is already far-fetched, let alone being able to leverage it for communications or putting it in a package as small enough as a, as a mobile device. But we might as well dream. We can dream. That's right. There's some Star Trek stuff going on there that, that you know, why not? Um, but I think that would be a major game changer for network telecommunications, for security communications. Mm -hmm. um, there, there has been some interesting experiments uh, in this space. Um, in China, the space program, actually, they have a satellite that they launched into space uh, that uses uh, certificate-based encryption to communicate between uh, Earth and, and that satellite. And using quantum technology, they were able to update that certificate here from Earth without having physical access to the satellite. Um, now, this is not using quantum entanglement. Let's be super clear. Like, they're, they're, right. no one's anywhere near that. But the fact that we can update root certificates for encryption without physical access, that's also a type of game changer that gets us one or two steps closer towards uh, sort of that um, very exciting, defensible future state of, of secure networks. That's amazing. So with that, is there, are there specific places that people can follow you online and whatnot, Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, whatever it is that you like? Obviously there's the color aid website, C-O-L-O-R-A-I-D.org. And then what else, where, where, where can people reach out? Uh, I think one of the best places to reach out is probably on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Scott Longhire, L-O-N-G-H-E-Y-E-R. Fairly easy to find, fairly unique name there. Um, I'm not a, a very extraordinarily active poster. You won't see a ton of updates from me, but you will see 
targeted, very specific things. And so I tend to go for quality over quantity. And uh, you'll see, of course, anytime there's any leap uh, related to, to quantum tech, I, I tend to share something about that. Um, I, I am interested in, in what I would call more realistic communications. Uh, for example, some of you may or may not know, uh, there's been some advancements in hollow core optical technology, which is kind of cool. So historically, optical has been basically glass fibers, you know, stranded together to, to connect cities together, to connect across uh, oceans and whatnot. And, and now they've developed a technology where the center of that glass fiber is hollow. Light travels faster through air than it does through glass. And so we're reducing latency of these uh, light-based optical communications just through technologies like that. So you'll see updates like that from me. I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more engaged on the, the networking and communication side. But more recently, in, in experiences like this, uh, you'll, you'll start to see more information about how industrial components are coming of age in a cybersecurity world. And then, of course, uh, my organization and, and myself are heavily focused on network threat detection and prevention uh, security control capabilities. So I get excited about those things, too. Yeah, that's amazing. I, but before we wrap here, hollow core. So basically, we, when for, 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 for folks who don't know, fiber optic is effectively a, a, a cable that's got glass inside of it. And then you shoot different colors of lasers and the things on the on the opposite ends can read those colors of lasers. And so they don't really interfere with one another. And um, you, you have X amount of bandwidth. With hollow core, how, how would that work? Is it, is it the outside line with glass and then it just bounces through? You, you nailed it exactly. That's exactly right. So there's still a glass donut, if you will, yeah. going all the way down the cable, but the center of that donut is hollow. It's it's air. And so the vast majority of the distance that the light is traveling is more through air than through the outer shell of glass. And therefore it reduces the latency significantly, especially on long haul links, uh, like across oceans and between continents and whatnot. So uh, that, that technology is coming quickly into the field. It, it's already been commercialized. And so- are they, laying, are they laying, and for those who don't know what this is, it's exactly what it sounds like. Are they laying submarine cables between? But submarine cables is exactly what it sounds like. It's literally a giant cable across the ocean. And that's, I'm not kidding you, that is how the internet is mostly connected is via these submarine cables that go from various points on the East and West Coast to either Asia or Europe. I, I can't speak explicitly to that, uh, but I will say that the tech is ready. Right, the optics nice. are ready. the The physical cables are ready. the The distances have already been tested, uh, and so the next evolution of of reducing latency is really around leveraging air, <laughs> like using air. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Seriously, and uh, and with that, um, Scott, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you, brother. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Well, we'll I want to do this again at some point. We'll have to do this again. I feel like we could do like 10 of these and, and not have a dull conversation. Um, with that, we have been standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute ple pleasure. Uh, I, I've been humbled uh, by some of your previous guests. Uh, I was like, oh, wow, these people are impressive. This is incredible um, to be able to participate. Uh, like this is, is an awesome experience for me. Thank you so much.